Welcome to Chinuch Today with Rabbi Yerachmiel Garfield, where we highlight innovative ideas and inspiring people from the world of Chinuch. Hello and welcome to Chinuch Today podcast. This is Yerachmiel Garfield. Today we are going to veer from our well-chartered path of Chinuch Today podcast format Traditionally, in the Chinuch Today uh, podcast, we welcome a person who has developed either a methodology or an innovation for the Chinuch world. Today, we are going to change from that as I will present to you a Chinuch methodology that's not well known, but unfortunately, I will not be able to include the founder in explaining to us the methodology, and I'm going to be doing my best to encapsulate it and explain it. It's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Unfortunately, right before Hanukkah, we suffered the loss of a very important person in my personal life. His name is Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Levine, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, and he was the grandson of Rabbi Aryeh Levine, and he very much championed a chinuch methodology that he referred to as the Levine Method. And having grown up in his house, along with his family, who are, are very near and dear to, to me, and my family, I've been able to get a close-up view of what this methodology means, how it uh, evolved to some extent, and how it expresses itself in the work I do in Chinuch. And hopefully I'll be able to share that with our listening audience to get an insight into this great man, Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Levine, and the work he did in his life and his legacy, Amir Hashem as one does when someone passes. So a brief overview of who Rabbi Levine was before we get into the methodology. What's sort of unique about Rabbi Levine is personal history and his methodology are very entwined. In fact, he, he was very much a product of who he was, of his history, I guess like we all are, but uh, his history was a little unique. And as a result, his methodology and his approach is unique. And I you know, consider it such a bracha that our family has been able to connect to that and see that because it's, it's certainly rare for someone who was brought up in America in the 80s, 90s, like I was, to have access to such a deep tradition. Rabbi Levine was actually born in Eretz Yisrael. He is the son of Rabbi Chaim Yankov Levine, who was the oldest son of Rabbi Aryeh. For those of you who aren't familiar, there's a book called The Tzaddik in Our Time, which was written about Rabbi Levine, who was a, a great tzaddik. He was born and bred in Europe, but made aliyah to Eretz Yisrael early on. And he became a figure of tzitkus, of righteousness, throughout Israel as someone who connected to Jews of all backgrounds. He was known to visit prisoners and to visit the ill. And part of his appeal was that he was accepted and connected to Jews of all stripes and colors, regardless of their religious observances. He was connected to the soldiers, those who were fighting for the freedom of, of Israel. He would visit them in, in, in the prison and give them chizik and, and be a source of communication between them and their family. He also was very close to Rav Avi Mitzchak Akain Cook, and his son, Rav Chaim Yankiv, was a dear Talmud of his and really grew up learning from him and considered him a Rebbe, so much in his Sfarim called Chel HaMelech and Chel HaMikdash. One of the Haskamas is from Rabbi Cook, and you could look at that and see the warm relationship they had. It was uh, They were so connected that when Rabbi Levine was born, uh, his unfortunately his, his mother was ill, 
There was a story about that. I, I don't want to be too historic because I'm not an expert on some of the details of these stories. But broadly, she was she was ill. I believe it had to do with an explosion that went off. And regardless, Rav Cook came to them in a dream and encouraged his father that he that she would be well. And in fact, she was. And when the baby was born, they named him Avram Yitzchak. I believe he was one of the first children to be named after Rav Cook. And Rav Levine always had a picture of Rav Cook and always spoke about him with great reverence as he was a family, you know, one of the G'daylim that influenced his family so much. After being born in Eretz Yisrael, the Mishpacha, Rav Chaim Yankiv, had married a girl from London, the Levine. His actually name was Levin. He married someone named Levine, who was Rav Yehuda Leib Levine, who was a, a Rav for many years in London. And so they moved, they, they had to visit them. So they went to visit them in England. It was the first time that Reb Chaim Yankov was meeting his shver. And there was, the war broke out. I would imagine it's World War II. And because of that, it was not easy to travel back to Eretz Yisrael. Mayor Bailan was involved as well and advised the young Reb Chaim Yankov to go to America and to do like shlichos, you know, he should go be Machazik America. While the war was going on in any way, he couldn't get back and would have been an opportunity for him. So he came to America. I believe he started in Seattle and then ended up as the Rav for many years in Jersey City. And during that time, there were Levine children born. There's David Levine, who lives in Pardeshana. There's Hani Levine, who also lives in Pardeshana. And there's Benji Levine, who lives in Harnof and Ushalayim. And this family, Rebchaim Yaakov, raised his family even though he was very much a Yushalmi, his heart, Liba Yubim Mizrach, he raised his family in America, in Jersey City, and uh, always had this deep connection, though, to Eretz Yisrael, and all the children at different points went back. So much so that three of the children, David, Benji, and Chani, all live in Eretz Yisrael and went back, and as did Chaim Yankiv, he retired in, in Eretz Yisrael and went back to Pardes Chana. It's important to note that Reb Chaim Yaakov was a unique gon. He was known amongst the Yushalmim as someone who had a tremendous memory and a gain. He wrote these farim, as I mentioned, Chal HaMikdash, Chal HaMelech, on the Rambam, on uh, Nedarim, on Hilchus Kachim, uh, other, other farim as well. And he was a close chavrusta to Reb Shlomo Zalman Arbach and a dear lifelong friend. And known in Yushalayim amongst the elders and the Gedolim of Yushalayim as a great guy in Sadik. So much so that he was offered many prestigious positions, all of which he turned down because he enjoyed the anonymity of Pardeshana, and he lived there. When I was a young boy, we got to meet him. I believe he died in 1993. I was actually in Eretz Yisrael when he died, but unable to make it to the to the Levaya, although since then I've heard that there were no Hespedim at the Levaya because there were no Hespedim at Arav Avram Yitzchak, Satsal's Levaya, for the same reason whatever that reason is, it's, I'm sure it's the same one. And that's how he lived. He lived, uh, Reb Chaim Yankov was, was a gadol, the son of a gadol, and Avram Yitzchak, my Rav, was born into that family. He was very smart and independent as a young child. And when he, he went to, he was sent to Tells for high school, but Avram Yitzchak really wanted to learn by his grandfather, Rabariah. And so he implored his father, who sent him off as a young boy to Eretz Yisrael. And he has many wonderful stories of the time he spent there. Rabari had a yeshiva called Beis Aryeh, which was uh, in 
his house in his area in Nachlaot. And Rabbi Levine got to live in Rabbi's house and watch him and learn from him. And there are so many amazing stories. If this podcast was about Rabbi maybe we get into that, but there's a lot out there on him. There are books and videos and audios about it. But he lived a simple, loving life. And the Rabbi Levine did tell me something that you might not hear elsewhere, that his grandfather, people think of him as a softy, and he was very loving, but he was no softy. He said he had iron will and tremendous dedication and focus to his values. And if he was convinced of something, he said, it was very hard to change his mind. Very strong person. And so he was there, and also Rav Plachinsky, who was one of Rabari's son-in-laws, was the Rosh Hashiva, and Rabbi Levine learned with all these older Talmud Chacham of Rishulayim at that time. It's interesting, during the Shiva, Lali, who was one of Rabbi Levine's daughters, who lives in Baltimore. Hi, Lali. Anyway, she was telling me that she saw some letters written by the family about Rabbi Levine, and one of them was saying how it's so strange that he, he's a young man. It was written at that time, back to America. And the message from one of the aunts was, how he should, it's a little strange to have this young boy who all of his friends are old rabbis. And she thought that was a little strange. He should hang out with some of the people his age. But of course, the us know Rabbi Levine and understand the time, could appreciate how Rabbi Levine just loved, Rabbi Mitzchak loved to connect to these great characters, these Yushalmi characters. And one of the last meetings I had with Rabbi Levine over the last year, I asked him more about that. And he told me about the characters who learned in that yeshiva and uh, all the different personages, and it was just such a, uh, a magical time for Rabbi Levine, and influenced his whole Matthias as someone who felt so connected to that world, and gave him a sense of confidence about what's right and wrong, and what Yiddishkeit really is. We live in a world where Yiddishkeit is open to so many different interpretations, different ideas of what being from looks like, and Rabbi Levine was so unaffected by that. His vision of what right was, what Torah was, what Messiah was, was uh, so solid. It was so concretized by those years in Eretz Yisrael and his connection to his father and his grandfather that he was unimpressed by any modern conceptions of what true Judaism is. He knew what true Judaism is. He gave it over to his family and his Talmidim and to me. And he told us, this is what it is. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And that level of confidence was another element that made his methodology, which we're calling the Levine method, so unique, is that it was not easily influenced by modern conceptions. It's important to point out that when he was in Eretz Yisrael, he had a relationship with Ervisser Zalman Meltzer. Interesting coincidence that Ervisser Zalman needed a certain milk that only uh, they were able to get through a certain cow. And his uncle, Reb Simcha Levine, used to take care of that, but he got married, so they gave the duties to Rabbi Levine, and he always said what a bracha it was to interact with Rabbi Salman and his wife during those years, and one of Rabbi Levine's talmidim, Daniel Nosenchak, showed me a uh, letter that was printed in Yeshurun from Rabbi Salman, in which he writes to Rabbi Levine's father, Chaim Yankiv, this was in Tuf Shin Yud Beis, and it says in the bottom, Avram Yitzchak, Boy Lai Lefrakim Ladaver Bidivrei Torah, Vahani Nenemi Menu, Ubezus Hashem is Allah Pobli Mudo. Rabbi Zalman mentions to his father that Rabbi Levine was there and he enjoyed talking to him and learning. He also had a lot to do with his uncle. His uncle 
I'm referring to Rabbi Yashiv, who was Gadol Hadar, and he was married to one of Rabbi's daughters, and he had a close connection to him during those times and the years that follow. There's a funny story with Rabbi Yashiv that I'll mention at this point. It's just cute that there is a certain fundraiser, an organization that was fundraising in the name of Rabbi Yashiv and came to America. And Rabbi Levine's policy in his shul was not to endorse any particular fundraiser because he felt, you know, as a Rav of Shul, how does he decide which ones and which ones not to? So this group comes, and they didn't know Rabbi Levine's connection fully, so they said, we represent the G'daylem in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Levine said, aha, very nice, very impressive. He said, Rabbi Yashiv has paskin that every Rav in America needs to, uh, you know, participate and represent us. He said, really? So he said, wait here. So he goes to his phone, he picks it up, <laughs> He calls, he calls the mishpacha, he says, can I talk to, I don't know what he called him, uncle, uncle. And they put him on the phone and he asks him in front of this chavra, you know, is it true that you sent this chavra to, to, over, to override my policy? So, of course, Rabbi Yashua said no, and he, you know, Rabbi was able to set these people uh, on their way. Of course, they were in shock that this American Sharov had such uh, yichas and connection. He also, of course, was first cousins with Rabbi Reb Chaim Kenievsky, Zechir Tzadik Levracha, he told me he was at Reb Chaim Kenievsky's vart, and he remembers the shtikol Torah that Reb Chaim Kenievsky said, and years later when he saw him, he reminded him, Rabbi Levine reminded Chaim about it, and they had a, a nice conversation about that shtikol Torah. So all of this was the world that Rabbi Levine grew up in. You know, even though he grew up as an American in Jersey City and went to yeshivas in America, RJJ, Tarevadas, and, and as I mentioned, tells. He also uh, had a very much an infusion of that Yerushalmi depth, love of Yiddishkeit, and influence. And all this came together as he went into the world and decided to join the American rabbinate. He has smicha from a number of places. There's a Rabbi Siegel, who was an old American rav, and uh, Rabbi Levine was definitely close to and spoke very highly of him. In fact, I just heard also at the Shiva that he was Masader Kedushin for them. That, uh, of course, I, I assumed, I asked who was a Seder condition. I assumed it was going to be the Rebbe Levine's father, but uh, that he had given it, Rebbe Levine's father had given it to this Rabbi Siegel to take over, who was uh, considered, you know, a gadol at that time. He also had a very unique smicha from Rebbe Henkin. Rabbi Henkin was, was the gadol of America. He was, uh, it was before... Rav Moshe was the Gadol in America, the main Paisik, it was Rav Hankin, and they shared some time together. Some very interesting things written about him in a recent book by Rav Eitan Cobra has a great chapter on him. But anyway, so Rabbi Levine also has a smicha letter from him, which was very unique at that time. He also, of course, got from his grandfather. So Rabbi Levine came into the world of Rabbanis with all of this amazing support and, and, and pedigree, both in terms of the yichas and exposure and experience, and he came to the American scene first as a Rebbe, and then life brought him to Lower Marion Balakinwood, which was a very small shul. It was sort of a unique time back then, many, many years ago, like 50 years ago. Um, the shul was made of intellectuals. It was not, there was actually a breakaway because it wasn't of two yeshivish or two, I don't know what that meant in those days, but it was made of a much more eclectic and intellectual crowd Rabbi uh, Aaron Rekefet Rothkoff has a lot to say about that as he was the first Rav and he has some wild stories about how he was treated and the low 
observance and hashkafas that existed, although they did one in Orthodox shul. Rebbe Levine came to the shul. It was an old little house on Old Lancaster Road. And slowly he started to build. There are many stories about that. In the early days, things were going rough. There's a beautiful story about Rav Hutner, where Rebbe Levine's uh, Schwer, Cantor Rosenbaum, was questioning whether or not it was the right steller for him, and he was very connected. The Rosenbaums were big askanim in, in Muncie, and were very connected to many Gedolei Yisrael. So they, uh, Rav Hutner, maybe he could speak to Rebbe Levine and tell him he should go for a bigger steller, like he's in this little binky uh, place, they're not even paying him properly. So Rav Hutner called him, and they had a conversation. And the conversation goes that Rav Hutner tried to convince him that, uh, you know, he doesn't have good Baal To which Rav Levine said, what do you mean? I have wonderful Baal You don't have a good shul? What do you mean I have a wonderful shul? And everything Rav Hutner said to, to put into question his steller, so Rav Levine saw as a positive. So finally, we called him back, I heard one time, or he got up and came around. If you know Rav Hutner, this is very uncharacteristic of him to express emotion like this, but he, he gave Rebbe Levine either a hug and kiss, or he called him later and gave him Devei Bracha and said, you know, I was supposed to convince you out of this, but you are the right man, you know, for this job, and you should go with Hatzlacha and Magzal. So whatever it is, Rebbe Levine started on this path and was the Rav of this young fledgling shul in Lower Merriam, which at that time had very few members at a very... A limited commitment to Torah and to Avodah Hashem. This is around the time that the Garfield family, which is my parents, got on board and got to know Rebbe Levine. Uh, he also was giving a class downtown at Penn at that time, University of Pennsylvania. And although my father and mother did not grow up from, they always had a very Jewish and deep Jewish connections. And one of my father's uh, friends, Avi Weinstein, was coming back from Eretz Yisrael, and he asked my father to help him connect to a shul for Tishabov. So my father had known the Rebbe Levine was giving this class downtown. And so he told Avi, let's go, we'll go to Rebbe Levine, we'll go to this rabbi. He looked him up or called him and found out where and when uh, the service was going to be. So they went Tishabov night. It was my father's first uh, experience with uh, Orthodox Judaism pretty much. I mean, you know, in many years. So you'd think not the best time for a Kirov effort, you know, on Tishabov night. But uh, that wasn't the way Rebbe Levine operated. So uh, after the service, after Marev, Rebbe Levine invited them back to the house. My father reports that uh, they spent hours schmoozing and telling stories and enjoying each other's company. You think a Tishbav night is a time for uh, a Rav to, to wallow and to cry and to sit on the floor. But I think Rebbe Levine saw that this is his first chance, maybe his only chance, to spark a, uh, to spark a light in this young Jewish man. And so he did. And that began a relationship that continues to this day that uh, has spawned the, quite a lot of Taira and Avaida and Yerushalayim and many, many a Tishabov spent with, uh, with sorrow. And uh, so my father started to go to a shir by, by Rabbi Levine. Then my mother, then they got married around that time. I don't know the exact timeline. My brother was born and slowly my father became more and more connected and my mother to the Levine family. Initially, he would walk from our home in Wynwood, which was over, I don't know, probably a four-mile walk. My father would walk every Shabbos and spend the afternoon with the Levines. At that time, their children were quite young, Jonathan, Judy, Lolly, and Becky. And uh, so in those days, they remember him. He would read and talk to them. My father is an exceptional conversationalist, so he would engage them in conversations about their life and about the world. 
and he would he would just sit there and read and enjoy. There's a marvelous story that is part of the Garfield-Levine family lore that I think uh, should be mentioned at this point, and that is that when my brother Sam, I'm one of two, my older brother, who's 17 months my senior, was born, uh, there was something wrong with him. He had a severe medical concern as a, as a baby, as a newborn, and there was questions about the bris and how, what to exactly do whether or not it was an issue with the liver or the heart, I'm not 100% sure, but it was a significant organ that was in danger and question. And uh, the doctors had no choice, but they had to do some kind of exploratory procedure to really get at what was causing this dysfunction. And uh, my parents were very distraught about it, of course, as any new parent as their oldest new baby. And they were new at being a parent. And they went to Rabbi Levine and they told him about the pain and the, and the worry. So Rabbi Levine said, let me come and daven. I'm going to come to the hospital, and I'm going to daven by this tinok. So Rabbi Levine came, and he said a special tefillah, and he spent some time with, with the baby. And then he turned to my parents, and he said, have no worries. We will dance by his chasana together. And uh, overnight, they were prepping him the next morning for the procedure. And believe it or not, the ailment or the issues that existed that were causing them to need to do this exploratory procedure were resolved, and there was no more concern. And the doctors had no understanding of what was wrong or how it resolved itself. But the Garfield family and the Levine family knows what happened. And since then, I was reading the Tzaddik in Our Time, and if you look in that book, you will find that Herbarie had a special tefillah that he had be Arusha from Chaim Volozhin, and that was able to be used as a special segula for a fuah. So I never asked Rabbi Levine personally about this story. You know, there are certain stories you don't ask explicitly about, but there's no doubt this story took place to my brother. I could tell you, I, I've heard it many times from my parents, and I thought it would be important to share, as this was something, an experience that happened early on in the relationship between my parents, Rabbi Levine, and our family. And as we grew up and my parents became more from, uh, we would go there for every yontif. Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuos. And Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we'd also we'd go to the Nosenshaks, which is a close family, and be in Lower Marion. So we would spend every yontif with Rabbi Levine. And the memories that we have, that me and my brother have from those times, are are really what formed our chinuch, or the basis of our chinuch, because Rabbi Levine would always say to us, you are our family. The term that's been coined for this is the children of his heart. And Aunt Chani told us at the Shiva, Chani Levine, we called her Aunt Chani, said, you are the original, the OG children of the heart, me and Sam. And so we grew up with the kids. We had uh, wrestling at the spectrum when we would fight in the uh, living room and we would hang sheets over the banister from upstairs and swing up and down and of course, whenever I needed comfort because I would get in a fight on occasion with my brother, I remember Judy and Lolly were always there to, to make me uh, comfortable. And of course, Jonathan would give up his room or he would allow us to stay with him. I remember he had uh, mattresses stacked up on his bed. And the way his bed would work is, depending on how many visitors they had that Chavez, he would take apart his bed, you know, from the full four or five even mattress height, and then he would have one or two mattresses and everyone else would share the mattresses and we would take over their house upstairs. You know, the whole, we had, uh, my parents would be in the attic until it became Rabbi Levine's uh, private study 
And uh, me and Sam would be in Jonathan's room where then we would move around to Judy, etc. And we, we literally grew up in their home. We have so many wonderful memories of, uh, of fun and enjoyment around their Shabbos table and their Yontif table and seeing Rebbe Levine. Another incident that I remember that really speaks to the relationship that we had was with Becky. We used to get together in the summer. So one summer we decided when we were going to pool our money. I think Sam and I were 10, maybe 11, and she was, Becky was probably an older teen. We we're going to pool our money. I think it was $40 to rent a speedboat. Sam and I each gave 10 and Becky was going to give 20. And so we put our money together and we went out in this boat. And as soon as we got out into the open sea, the motor got caught on some uh, seaweed. And so the engine wouldn't go. And we basically got stuck for the whole 45 minutes or however long it was out at sea. And so finally we called the, the guy and he came and got us and towed us back in or whatever happened over there. And we ended up spending the whole time not really enjoying ourselves. And so we were a little upset about that. And when Becky left, I remember we, we found under our pillows the $10 that we had given, each, me, each of us, me and Sam. And I thought that was such a kindness, such an act of love from Becky, who saw how disappointed we were and didn't leave us hanging. Just another example of the kindness we experienced with the Levines. I would say that uh, one of the, the characteristics that shines through is that it was always fun and interesting. He was always in an up mood. There was always laughing, telling stories. There was always a, a simcha, a real joy of Yiddishkeit and of life and a celebration. You know, a personal story that happened to me is I remember one, I think it was Simchas Torah or Purim. I don't remember exactly. I was probably three years old. There was a man running around and acting wild. I don't remember if he was drunk or if he was wearing a, a, a costume Whatever it was, it made me very scared as a young boy. And I ran over to Rebbe Levine, and I said, Rebbe Levine, I was crying. This man, he's scaring me. So Rebbe Levine said, we're going to put honey in his socks, and we're going to throw him in the frash. And that was his way of comforting me. I remember it was so creative, right? I, it's like, what do you tell a kid? We're going to put honey in his socks and throw him in the frash. That became a, a line in my life. That whenever anyone is muching, which is the word that Rebbe Levine would use, bothering and making trouble, muching you, you think, okay, don't worry, we're going to put honey in the socks and throw them in the fresh. Rebbe Levine had this imaginary land called Fuselberg, and he would tell stories that took place at Fuselberg, and there was even a sign for a while in front of their house that said that that was the place of Fuselberg. And there were just so many things that would happen that were always funny and always fun. I remember once there was a, a Misa with this guy, one of their neighbors, he was jogging. And Rebbe Levine was taking a long time to come up. He's talking to this jogger outside for a long time, much more than usual. So finally he comes up and they asked him, well, what, what was that? He's like, I don't know if you noticed, but the guy was bald and it was cold outside. So he had smoke coming out of his head. Off the top of his head, Rebbe Levine thought that was the most fascinating thing. So he was schmoozing with him to get uh, more and more of a look to see him. So that was growing up in the Levine, in Rebbe Levine's house. He loved lions. He was a very, very sentimental. Everything around him meant something, pictures, and he had little gadgets, and he built things. 
I would say that one of the unique characteristics of Rabbi Levine is that he saw the world through a prism of Torah and everything, every art, every experience, every sound, every aspect of humanity was an opportunity to understand Hashem and connect to Hashem. You know, when I was younger, I didn't always appreciate how unique that was. One time I was coming to meet him, I walked up, I, f- I forgot where I was coming from, I was walking up his long driveway, and he was outside across from their front front door and looking at the flowers there, and there was a certain flower, I'm sad I don't remember which one, and he said, just look at this flower, looking at the flower. He tells me a whole Dvar Torah about the number of petals, I think I had six petals, don't remember, and how each petal represents something in the Maral, on this, and on the, on the spring, a whole Dvar Torah, he could talk about almost any topic with such knowledge and, and broad understanding. He was very, loved the Maharal, loved the Maharal as a, a basis for these ideas, and he very much thought that way, very poetic and very, you know, creative and seeing symbolism. He, he knew how to do woodwork. He would build things in his attic. He had art, many murals or art pictures that he made himself. He loved binding books. He loved books. Binding books. There was a place that, a secret place, I, I guess I could spill the beans now, a place called the Book Barn. And I don't know if it's still around, but it was a huge old mansion out in uh, Brandywine, in the Brandywine area. My father used to take him there. They would take walks and they would go to the Book Barn. You go to the Book Barn, it was a house full of, an old house full of character, full of books. It was a place to escape. They called him Abe, Abe Levine. He would go there. They knew him. He was, they loved him. He loved them. And it was a place that he would escape to. It's funny because I had my own similar experience years later. And uh, I called Rabbi Levine and he gave me tremendous chizik. There was a coffee place. There is a coffee place in Atlanta called Atlanta Coffee Roasters. And I used to go there because my home was about 20 minutes from where I worked in yeshiva. And I needed a place to prepare and to do work and to take a break. So I'd go to Atlanta Coffee Roasters. The proprietor of Atlanta Coffee Roasters, his name is Bill. Bill still is there. It's unfortunately still closed due to COVID, but Bill still works there. Bill is a chemist. Bill is an older man with a long white beard. He was a chemist who fell in love with coffee. And he made Atlanta Coffee Roasters, and he puts his heart and love into the roasting of that coffee. You should see the back there. He has a machine that's uh, 25 years old that he keeps working his roaster. And there's something so Levine-esque about the environment and about Bill and about the way he loves coffee and the way he makes it. The whole thing was just, I loved it. And there was a time when uh, there were some halachic questions that came up around it and it became a conversation in the community. So I called Rabbi Levine and I explained it, how I loved going there. And he said, tell me all the details. So I went through the details of how they produce the coffee and the nature of the, the aspects of the halachic questions. And Rabbi Levine told me, he's like, Rabbi enjoy Atlanta Coffee Roasters, send my love to Bill, and make sure you keep going there. You know, not to say that the cashless agency that was concerned about it was, was illegitimate. They have very legitimate concerns, perhaps. But for the, my use and the, the type of thing that I was doing there, Rabbi Levine told me I have nothing to worry about. And that was my book barn, my escape, my place where they knew me. To this day, I'm very close to him. I actually just spoke to him. I had a shayla, a coffee shayla. So I called Bill. And uh, he's my book barn for myself. And Rabbi Levine did recognize 
the importance and the halachic process of the human experience. When you spoke to him, you felt like he really had real empathy and understanding. There's another Misa that happened to me with a uh, yeshiva I was learning in. So the Rosh Yeshiva wanted to, he asked me, could he come collect? Could he come collecting in Philadelphia? You know, maybe my father could hook him up. So, you know, my father, Balchuva, he's not like Mr. Uh, fundraiser exactly. My mother's a little more aggressive in that area. My father, not his thing, not his thing. He's not going to, not really something that he would speak to. But I was torn because I had Akar Satov to the yeshiva I was in. I certainly wanted to um, show them that, and I didn't want to say no to the Rosh Hashiva. So I didn't know what to do. So what did I do? I called Rabbi Levine. I said, Rabbi Levine, what should I do? He's like, this is what you do, very simple. Tell your father you have no expectation, you have no tainas, but the Rosh Hashiva asked you, so you're going to ask him. And when, if he says no, you're fine. You'll tell the Rosh Hashiva no, but at least you, you felt you had an achrayas to ask. Okay? So I, um, so I did that. My father said no. He said I'm happy to drive him around, but I'm not going to be able to make meetings and that kind of thing for him. It's just not something I do and not comfortable with, which is what I expected and understood on my own. But it was fine. So I went back to the to the Shishim and I told him that. Fine. This was before cell phones, believe it or not. So that day, many, you know, over Ben Azmanim, I had gone to Muncie uh, to, to visit some friends. When I come back, my mother says, were you expecting a visitor today? I'm like, I was not expecting a visitor. He said, guess what? That Rosh Hashiva called from the train station or the, air, or the airport. I think it was the train station. And he, he asked for dad. And your father had to go pick him up. He wanted him to help him collect. I said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Oh, yeah, yeah. My mother, interestingly, uh, had great respect for that move. She's like, you know, listen, if you believe in something, you got to you gotta go for it. So, Baruch Hashem, it was not a chil Hashem uh, in that way. But anyway, I go to my father. He was, he was out, and I, I saw him. I went to go visit him. I said, Dad, what did you do? He said, what do you think I did? I brought him to Rabbi Levine. So my father picked up the Sarshiva, brought him to Rabbi Levine. They schmoozed, whatever they did. And he put him back on the airplane. With the, he said, I don't worry, I gave him a, a gift. But, uh, you know, I had somewhere to take him. And Rabbi Levine was the address for our family. He used to tell us, uh, Rabbi Levine would say, you know, if you ever need any yichus, you have my yichus. I have plenty of yichus. You have the Levine yichus. And, and even though... You know, I don't think that that's gonna that is gonna get me far in a yichus uh, resume. I, I do really feel in my heart that Rav Levine did, in many ways, give us. You know, what is yichus? Yichus is where you get certain values and baked in who you are that others know you have those values. I imagine that's why yichus is is a meaning. If someone has yichus, and maybe on some spiritual level, it's a little more. But on a on a practical level, if someone has yichus, you know that they grew up among certain values, and they're deeper baked, opposed to someone who came to it later who doesn't have that exposure. So, you know, I, I always do feel that uh, Rabbi Levine made sure that we were connected to him, that we understood his values, and that we we got that. We got those, me and my brother and many others got that. And he was the person we went to. We would cry to him many times, both, both I know, you know, me and my brother, when we had difficulties in our lives, we would have an, uh, an opportunity to call him. Rabbi Levine was very careful to um, be positive and to make people happy. 
That was his uh, calling card, was to exude love to all people. Whenever we had a difficulty, we would certainly call him. Even most recently, in the last few years, I had a very uncomfortable situation here in Houston where an Adam Gadol was questioning something I was doing and did so in a somewhat public way. And of course, that is never something anyone wants to go through. Very difficult for me on a personal level. So what did I do? You know, I reached out to Rabbi Levine. And he gave me chizik, and he made, he said, don't worry, and he discussed the issue, and he, he gave me the confidence to face it. And when you, have, uh, when you have someone like that behind you, someone with that level of, of scholarship and midos and, and depth of Yiddishkeit, you know, it just makes everything calm, makes everything confident, both in this world and in the next world. I didn't mention... The, his scholarship, but um, you know, he was also a very big Talmud Chacham. Remember when I was learning in yeshiva, whenever I would come home, I would talk to him in learning, and he, it didn't matter what I was learning. You know, when you go to yeshiva, you spend months on one Indian. So I was able to, well, Yavamis, Ksubas, Gitten, Babakama, Baba Basra, whatever the sugya was, he loved Baba Basra. Whatever the sugya was, I would talk to him. He was holding, not only in general, he was holding in the lines of the Tysus. He, I believe he had a photographic memory can't say with confidence, but I believe he did, based on uh, different experiences I had. His memory was phenomenal, phenomenal. I, I would often write Shtuchach Torah from Yeshiva and send them to him. You know, he should read them, he should comment on them. I wanted to certainly give him nachas. And so I would send them Shtuchach Torah. The funny thing is, like two years later, you think I remember what I sent him? But he remembered. <laughs> so he would remind me at times, oh yeah, you sent me a shtickle tire on that. And uh, of course, I uh, I did not remember, but he did. He did with great confidence. Another thing that, that he did for me that was very unique and spoke to his love and his understanding of the world and his broad, broad-minded appreciation of Tyra and, and where Torah comes from and what it means to be a true Torah, a, a Torah true Jew is before, for me personally, I went through sort of a change in high school. I started high school in a little more modern of a mindset. But by the end of high school, I was gearing up for yeshiva. I was running around my black hat and really feeling connected to the yeshiva world. And so I came to see him. You know, I was getting ready to go to Eretz Yisrael to learn. I came to see Rabbi Levine. And he sent me down. He said, listen, I am so proud of the growth that you are experiencing. It's wonderful to see your commitment to learning and davening and all this stuff. But you should know something. You should know that the backbone of who you are as a Jew comes from your parents and your grandparents. He knew my grandparents. He began telling me about my grandparents who were not from. But he was telling me about their midos of MS and kindness and gutkeit. And he showed me how those midos of my grandparents who were not from, who I did not consider even, in a ruchliyistika eifen, how the immediate impact that they had on my parents and that my parents therefore had on me and how all this newfound religion really is based on their foundational pieces. So Rabbi Levine was someone who, again, saw the whole world through this prism of Tyra. There was nothing, like I said, there was nothing that escaped his appreciation or his celebration, if you will, within Torah. He loved music. He could name you different music. He had upstairs in his study an old record player, which he would play old music. He loved the Three Stooges. He loved comedy. He loved great stories. I hope the family is able to put together all of his stories and make them available for the world because 
the stories he would tell were just amazing, you know, they can, and they could span 30, 50 years of uh, follow-up and things that would happen because of his, his tremendous memory. I'd like to end with a poem. Well, one of Rabbi Levine's calling cards, one of his unique characteristics was poetry. I don't know how many Rabbanim are still reading and writing poems. He spent the last few years working on a, on a yet-to-be-published poem by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi which I'm sure they'll be putting out somewhere. It was a, a work of love that he did. And he has a poem called My Prayer. Now, what's sort of interesting little story about this poem is that uh, on this past Shabbos, which was uh, after the Shiva, I came home, and I was feeling, you know, sad. I was thinking about Rabbi Levine. So I took out an old book. The shul put out, or Lomar and Synagogue put out a book in commemoration of their 50th year. And in the book, they had writings from Rabbi Levine and pictures of Rabbi Levine, and also some poetry of Rabbi Levine. So I took out the book, and I started reading a poem, different poems, but there was one that really spoke to me, especially the last line. And so I read it, and uh, at the end, I was, I was very touched, and I shared it with my family because I felt it so spoke, that the voice, the voice of Rabbi Levine. After Shabbos, I left a message for the Levines to tell them, Chani, that I, I did this. She said, you won't believe it. But Rabbi Levine, as I mentioned earlier, said he does not want any espadim by his funeral. His father didn't have any espadim. And she said that Rabbi Levine told her that he had to, it was very uncomfortable for him to tell the other Rabbanim of Yushalayim in 1993 when his father died, not to say espadim. Who is he, this American young guy, telling these out there Yushalmim not to say espadim? But that's what his father wanted. He felt he had a responsibility to that. And he made a Khani promise as well that there would be no espadim by his funeral. It's an interesting, he didn't, I don't know the reason why. I can imagine it has something to do with Anivas, but I could also imagine there's a lot more to it than that. What ended up happening was, Rebson Levine was reading to him from poetry towards the end. That was something that calmed him or made him feel comfortable. So she was reading him a poem. And one day she said, you know, you said we can't do Espadim. But how would you feel if we read one of your poems instead of a Hespid? So he said, which one? She said, this poem, my prayer. They ended up saying that prayer, Rabbi Schmidman, the Rav of Loa Marian, who was very close to Rabbi Levine, read that tefillah, that prayer. It's called my prayer. It's a poem, but it's also a tefillah at, at, at Loa Marian as the car went to the, went to the Kfura, went to Eretz Yisrael. And that's the prayer that I, that's the tefillah that I found, the poem that I found over Shabbos, that I found so poignant. And uh, it was published also, he has a book, a book of poetry is published. I found it afterwards in there on page 44. And here's how the poem reads, my prayer. Let my heart fill with mercy. May my lips speak the truth. May my mind age with wisdom. Let my feet spring with youth. Fill my being with goodness, plus the urge to do right. Let my eyes see for others in the black depth of night. Kindly grant me the power to come to the aid of those who have need of a friend unafraid. Grant me the strength to combat base desire. Every day show the way to climb higher and higher. In knowledge of God, in the service of man, allow me fulfillment to do what I can. Tis the goal of my soul to treat every man as brother, to respect every woman as sister or mother. May I treat every child as the child of my heart, and may love be my legacy when I depart.
And although this podcast is focused on educational methodologies and new innovations, I thought appropriate, as I mentioned in the beginning, to talk about Rabbi Levine and what is referred to as the Levine method. And what it boils down to is that very legacy that Rabbi Levine references in this poem, the legacy of love. Not only love between people, as it's most often thought of, and of that Rabbi Levine was very full of giving his family and those around him a sense of true love from him, but more seeing humanity as an expression of love of Hashem, whether it be through arts, written and drawn arts, he was an artist, whether it be through poetry that we talked about here, music, Torah, every element of humanity, uh, beautiful scenery, interesting people and characters, humor, oratory, history, every element of humanity came across as an experience of love. And I think as we bring it back to Chinuch, and as we bring it back to the work that we do in day school specifically, it's so critical that our students walk away with this feeling, this association, that when you think Torah, when you think Rabbanim, when you think Chinuch, you feel love. It's not easy to do. It's not easy to accomplish in day in and day out as a Machanach. But the Levine method was that. It was to make sure that no matter what is happening, no matter what the experience is, no matter what the challenge is, it be one that is experienced with hearts of love, with connection of love. And that's how I experienced Rebbe Levine. That's how my brother did and my family did and so many wonderful people did. And although growth is very slow because there's a lot of respect and a lot of room given for the other, there's very little demanding and pushing and musser. It's a very slow process of investment and deposits of love and modeling. But ultimately, if it's done correct, and you fill those who you care about around you with love, and you represent Torah, the value is that that will turn into their Avodah Hashem. By them associating and connecting to Torah and love, that is Avodah Hashem. And I believe Rabbi Levine would say that is how HaKadosh Baruch Hu relates to Klai Yisrael and to humanity. The whole crea- the Bria, the whole creation is an act of love from Hashem towards humanity and towards us as individuals. And in that way, Rabbi Levine was very mimicking, very much mimicking the Rabbi Shalom himself. So may this episode, in as a tribute to Rabbi Levine, perpetuate that legacy of love. And hopefully all the Mechanchim who are listening to this and all the people, all the parents and all the siblings and all the husbands and all the wives and all the coworkers and all the fellow human beings who listen to this, take that message and find a way to infuse the world with love. And then truly we could say that Rebbe Levine's words would truly be fulfilled. May I treat every child as the child of my heart and may love be my legacy when I depart. Yehi Zichroi Baruch.